Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. A lot of what touched on was my mother's illness or my father's illness, my divorce, my feeling of inadequacy when my son was born autistic and I felt like I failed my son. And I'm at ease with it all now because I realize a lot of those things were out of my control. So that's why I want to come full circle and say, control the controllables. That is the voice of Franklin Becker of F. Becker Hospitality, based in New York City. It wasn't possible in 2020 to continue the way we were, but it was also not possible in 2018 and 19. We were on a path towards failure as it was. And I think we really have to continue to fight now that we are at every seat at every table. We really are advocating for a holistic transformation of the industry. And that is Roar New York founding member Sean Feeney and executive director Andrea Strong discussing the organization's plans and priorities. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. Our feature guest today is Chef Franklin Becker of F. Becker Hospitality, based here in New York City. Franklin and I recently had a very real, very raw, heart-to-heart conversation at his newest project, Manhattanville Market, last week, and I think you will find it fascinating. And in the lineup, our weekly news and information segment the relatively newly appointed executive director of Roar New York, Andrea Strong, and founding member Sean Feeney join us to discuss the organization's upcoming plans and priorities, and that too 
is a fascinating conversation. I'm very happy with today's show. I think you're all going to enjoy it quite a bit. Before we get the show rolling, as I did last week, I need to share some gratitude for you listeners out there. Among them this week are Felipe Donnelly and Tammy Rofay. Felipe and Tammy are actually recent guests of the show. I interviewed them a few weeks ago at their Disco Tacos in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and they now have become devoted listeners, and I cannot get into the details of what was a rather personal note, but Tammy wrote me yesterday to share some very nice thoughts about our work here, and I just want to publicly thank her for that and say hi to the two of them if they're listening, which I kind of think they are. They seem to be listening all the time now. Secondly, I want to give an update. I mentioned last week that a listener of the pod and I had been in touch about him possibly flying to New York just to guest here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. We spoke the other day by phone. To be completely honest, I wanted to talk him out of spending the money to do that. I mean, I I personally love the show. I think we do a good job, but the idea of somebody going out of pocket to get to us seemed excessive to me. Well, it turns out that this guest, and for now I'll just call him Aaron, you'll all meet him in full soon enough, is currently spending a little time in Illinois, and I happen to be headed to Chicago on Sunday for a week. So get this, he extended his stay by 36 hours and is picking me up at the airport when I get in so we can do an interview when I arrive, and I am looking forward to meeting you, Aaron. And lastly... I also heard from a listener, I'm only doing first names for this kind of thing since these people have sent me private notes, Tim, who wrote me that, quote, one of my favorite things about your pods during COVID has been the sound of the street sirens and whatnot. Some of my favorite rap and punk slash hardcore bands from New York use those sounds. Feels like you were there just listening to a story. Thank you for that, Tim. It is a very deliberate decision not to mix out that sound of life, often urban life, swirling around in our in-person interviews. And it made my day that you enjoyed that aspect of the listening experience. I also think this is probably the first time ever that I have been compared to rap, punk, or hardcore. So I want to thank you for that. And thanks to all of you out there who listen, and especially to those of you who take the time to reach out and establish a personal connection. It is lonely editing and launching podcasts and hearing from listeners really does make it a little less lonely. So my appreciation to all of you. This episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs is sponsored in part by Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, also known as BMRS. Founded by industry veteran Brad Metzger, whose first kitchen job was under Wolfgang Puck at the original Spago and based in Southern California, BMRS Hospitality Recruitment matches top-level hospitality professionals with some of the best jobs in the industry, both across the United States and internationally. If you are looking for the next step in your career, from conventional positions like executive chef, pastry chef, and sous chef, to dining room positions like general manager, director of operations, or manager, to outside-the-box directions like R&D and private chefing, BMRS should be the first stop on your quest. There is never a cost to you, the candidate, and BMRS adheres to the strictest confidentiality standards. So reach out and begin a conversation with them today, whether to pursue a specific current listing or just to be sure you're on their radar so they can reach out to you when your dream position crosses their desk. As Brad himself likes to say, it never hurts to see what else is out there. BMRS has created a special email for our listeners. Send a resume to ATC 
at restaurant-solutions.com or call 310-245-5108 and tell them Andrew suggested you call. Learn more at restaurant-solutions.com and keep an eye out for some marquee listings on BMRS's Instagram feed at BMRS Food Jobs. So as I've been doing every week here, I want to share my most recent dining experiences with you. The highlight of my week was easily my latest dinner at probably my favorite restaurant in New York right now, Frenchette in the Tribeca neighborhood. It was my first time dining indoors there since 2019, and the place was every bit as beautiful and delicious as ever. The team, I have to say, were super gracious and generous to us, and we had a great, great time there. I also checked out a new restaurant closer to my soon-to-be former home in the suburbs in the town of Bronxville, New York. A group of former Blue Hill Stone Barns team members led by Chef Emily Gonzalez have opened the new La Casa Bronxville. It is, as you probably gather from that name, a Mexican restaurant. It's off to a terrific start. A lot of the food and the cocktails just a few days in were already spot on. We had a great time eating outdoors there. And then Wednesday night, two nights ago, Caitlin and I met up with my bestie, Evan Sung, for the last night of friends and family at St. Theo's Restaurant on Bleecker Street, where our pal Ashley Rath is the chef. It is an Italian restaurant, and Ashley, who has a passion for that country's cuisine, and her team are doing some great stuff. The pastas in particular are just tremendous. I also had the huge pleasure of reconnecting with restaurateur Jeff Kadish, for whom I used to do public relations in my past unhappy life as a restaurant publicist long before I was a writer, and it was great to see him. I didn't know he was part of that project until I got there, and I hadn't seen him in several years. Yesterday, I had a quick lunch, but it was still wonderful at Jose Andres's Little Spain uh, at Hudson Yards. That place is a big, bright, friendly, super dependable restaurant. I've been there just a few times, but it's always just perfect, and the staff is charming. And then last night, I caught up with the food of Greg Prochelle, who was doing a tapas bar in the space that used to be the Ferris, where he was also the chef. I love Greg's palate, and that of his chef there, Victor Amaria, who was also just super sweet. It is on West 29th Street in New York City, and I highly recommend it. And I hope that wherever you are and however you feel safe doing it right now, that you are getting out and supporting restaurants and, of course, treating yourself to the pleasures that they deliver. So in the lineup, our weekly news and commentary segment brought to you by Mies this week. I am pleased to welcome to the pod for the first time Andrea Strong, a colleague who recently became executive director of the advocacy organization Roar New York, and with Sean Feeney, Of course, Sean is the co-founder of Grove House, which is best known for the stupendous restaurants Lilia and Missy. He is also a founding member of both Roar and the Independent Restaurant Coalition. As Roar transitions from a relief mission driven by the pandemic last year to an advocacy and rebuilding mission, I wanted to have Andrea and Sean on to talk about what Roar is up to. And I have to say, this conversation stands in stark contrast to the one I had just last week with Joshua David Stein at least where the status of the so-called industry reset is concerned. I think that contrast is just a reflection of the state of flux the industry and the world are in right now, and I will be fascinated to hear and see how all of what we've been talking about in these recent conversations plays out. And with that, here is my chat with Sean Feeney and Andrea Strong. 
Welcome to the show, both of you. I'm so glad to have you here. Before we start, I guess maybe I'll ask you, Sean. I mean, I I think it is a statement of a kind, putting aside for a moment the specific decision you all make about hiring Andrea for this role. I think it's a statement of seriousness and a statement of intended longevity to bring on an executive director for an organization like this. I mean, many of these groups, all of them well-meaning and many of them doing great work, do oftentimes tend to be sort of ad hoc or or improvisational as they kind of move through time. What was the impetus for the decision to bring on an executive director for Roar? When we first opened Roar and started it to raise money for restaurant workers who are without jobs, it was just that. And that was what Roar was going to be. But then as the pandemic lengthened and we realized that there was going to be a lot more need for our voices, our help, and our creative creativity and, and compassion. And I think over the course of 2020 and into the end of that year, we realized like the decision to keep this going and the reality of the world opening back up and our responsibilities towards our businesses, we were all doing this as voluntary members. We knew that this organization needed to exist. And that was really what it came down to. We had a lot of conversations with our members and, and it needed to exist. And in order for us to keep it going in the right direction and keep building off of the success that we had in the first 10 months of Roar being a thing, we needed someone like Andrea to, to help us in this next chapter, in this new chapter of New York City and the, and the restaurant industry. And we're just so grateful to have somebody who is so amazing to, to help us, you know, lead us into that next chapter. Andrea, why don't you, I'd love to just, I mean, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of what you all are doing, but I do find this interesting. You know, most people know you as I have for, gosh, I don't want to say for how long, a couple of decades now, you and I have known each other as colleagues. And and, I mean, I can, we don't spend that much time together. I think of you as a friend. I, I don't think I even knew this maybe a million years ago I did, but knowing you as a writer exclusively, I, first of all, I didn't know you were a member of the bar. Although I guess maybe a million years ago, I read your, as I say that, I read your bio on your on your blog, and it probably talked about you switching and discovering the world of food and going all in on it. As I say that, that that bubbles up to my to my memory. But what was it that even made you interested in answering the call for something like this? Oh, it was you know the minute I heard they were looking for an executive director, I felt like oh my god, this job is everything that I've been doing for the past twenty five years rolled up into one chaotic, amazing package. And uh, I want it. Like you said, I started out as a lawyer. I was a corporate lawyer for five years and really was disenchanted with working way too many hours. And I'm not feeling any sense of real personal fulfillment from that. And then got involved with Share Our Strength and started working in restaurants after leaving the law when I turned 30. Worked in front of the house Uh, at Myriad Restaurant Group, opened a couple of restaurants in New York, and then realized, wow, these people who run restaurants have a different level of patience and hospitality in their blood than I do. And then transitioned to journalism and have been writing about restaurants and the restaurant industry as a reporter for 20 years. And most recently, really covering the challenges that that the industry has, both in terms of 
equity and um, social justice and, you know, the problems facing operators in terms of uh, the economics of running a business. And um, I also started an advocacy organization on my own last year, no, a couple of years ago now called the New York City Healthy School Food Alliance. So that I founded um, to try and change the way our city feeds all public school children to bring real, real cooks and real food back into kitchens and bring culinary education and essentially home ec back to the classroom to help support health for our, for our kids because one in five New York City kindergartners is obese or has diabetes or, or heart disease. So I had started this advocacy around school food, sort of just like, you know, knocking on council members' doors and the mayor's office and really got some traction. I had a bill introduced before city council. So, you know, long story short, it's like, here's a job that combines an industry, a passion for an industry that I've been reporting on and worked in most of my adult career. And it will allow me to advocate for the industry to potentially transform an industry into a, a more equitable, sustainable business model. And I just couldn't be more excited to be part of it. I'm like a pig in shit. I'm very happy. So can we talk about for a moment, I don't even know what you officially call, I don't know if it's called a tagline or a subtitle. I don't know what it's called when you apply it to an organization, but I am correct, right? That, you know, Roar... New York. What do you call it? The subheading, you know, what it stands for. It, it's morphed. It was relief opportunities for all restaurants. And it is now morphed into or evolved into restaurants organizing, advocating, rebuilding. Now, what that says to me, and I'll, I'll let either of you respond to it or both of you in, in tandem you know, there were organizations that predate the pandemic. There was uh, the IRC, obviously, is the most well-known one, or organizations that's cropped up during the pandemic. And what I was hearing all through the beginnings of last year, or the, the middle of last year, was that a lot of people who were meeting on, on at these or through these and other organizations were having a lot of side conversations about various things that needed addressing within the industry. I would group most of these things under the broad category of dysfunction or inequities, okay? And that that was all happening very much in an ad hoc way. And some people use the shorthand, the reset, to refer, you know, in a very broad sense to, you know, what all these things add up to, all these different topics people were trying to take on. You know, I, I look at this, the, this updated explanation of the meaning of ROAR, restaurants organizing, advocating, rebuilding. And to me, and I'd love to know if I'm right about this, that says that you're taking what was sort of happening in this kind of, you know, spontaneous way, maybe with little subgroups that were meeting through ROAR and other groups and making it official, making it the late pandemic or post-pandemic mission of the organization. Is that an accurate statement of the intent? Yeah, I think so. I think in the in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I, I was one of the founding members of IRC too, and and having daily phone calls at nine a.m. with thirty other well-known restaurant owners in the country. Most of them were my heroes, and hearing them be vulnerable, and um, it was almost like therapy sessions in the beginning for us, and it became a a group therapy class of what are the challenges that we're facing currently and what were the challenges that we were facing coming into this thing and i think it was the first time really ever that restaurant owners were being vulnerable with each other and communicating and and um 
thinking creatively for solutions together. And it really was out of survival mode. And through survival, um, it built the IRC into a pretty powerful coalition. And after six weeks of being in existence, we were asked to go to the White House. And March 20th, before that, we kind of started Roar. And when we started seeing what was doing with the group therapy of of, uh, of IRC, we just started hosting weekly calls for uh, owners in New York City. And those calls started out exactly like RSC calls. It was therapy. And we became vulnerable and we became communicating for the first time ever um, of restaurant owners. And we had 300 New York City restaurant owners on those calls in the early days in April, May, and June. And that also allowed us to gather information that was consensus and it was able to be communicated to all forms of government, whether it was the city, state, or federal. Um, so whenever things were arised and we were being asked our opinions, we had a consensus opinion be behind us sitting at the tables that we once weren't asked to be really at. And so, yeah, it definitely has snowballed out of a survival mode to this is actually imperative that we keep it going, both on a national and then a local city-state level. I want to get to your response to that in a second, Andrea. But what I take from what you just said, Sean, and I I think it's a point, you know, it's been such a, for all the reflection we've all been doing and all the time we've had to think about big things and how we want to change them over the last year and a half or so. You know, what you just said to me underscores something I think it's so easy for us to all really lose sight of about your industry, right? I'm just an observer of it. And the point I think, if I take what you just said, the point of it to me is a lot of the problems that, that are still with us, they're not problems that were brought on by the pandemic. They were problems that were amplified by the pandemic. They were problems that the pandemic made, and in the worst of cases, you know, through the closure of restaurants, impossible to ignore any longer, correct? Oh, yeah. These were things, it's not like you guys didn't know these problems existed, but all of a sudden it was just absolutely laid bare to an existential extent. Accurate? I, I absolutely think so. I, I mean, you know, from 2008 to 19, the restaurant industry in New York City like many other industries, realized this great expansion. The number of businesses, the number of restaurant workers, and the total revenues all nearly doubled. But in this time, there were negative headwinds that were growing, that were basically leading New York City's restaurant industry towards a path of, of failure. I mean, you basically had profit deterioration of um, you know, industry standard profit margins in 2008 was 20%. And in 2000. 20 in March, it was 5%. That caused a mass exodus of talent and an inability to recruit from the rest of the world. And the reality was that New York City lost its title as dining capital of the world. All of these were ominous signs of an industry destined to fail. And COVID, it wasn't the cause of our failure because the restaurant industry in New York City absolutely did fail. It was the accelerant of the inevitable. And, um, of an already very fragile industry. Yeah, I mean, I think the new tagline of Roar really sums up what we are, what we are trying to do, which is to reimagine the way that the restaurant industry needs to exist in New York City. That means that we are reimagining the wage structure, the, the labor laws. Uh, we are reimagining the way we take care of people who work in the industry by 
We are working on providing for physical and mental and financial health for restaurant workers and really creating a new ecosystem for restaurants so that we can thrive, so that every person who works in a restaurant, whether they are a dishwasher or a server or a bartender, can go home at night and not worry about what they're making and not feel less than because the front of the house is is taking home so much more than they we really are advocating for a complete a holistic transformation of the industry and and it's based on all of these therapy calls that were going on um in in the wake of this pandemic where everyone was really opening up about what was keeping them up at night and and we found a lot of commonality um in what was keeping everyone up at night and when you know, when you look at the New York City restaurant industry, just to throw out a little data, the New York City restaurant industry in 2019 provided 317,000 jobs and paid $10 billion in wages in the city and delivered $27 billion in taxable sales. That's in one year. That's what the restaurant industry does for our city and our state. And now the state needs to start supporting us in a more constructive way than they have been. And that's what we're advocating for. So how much of what you do is, you know, I see in the materials you sent me before this call, you're working with a, you're working with a lobbying firm. How much of what you all do is focused on legislative effort and how much of it is focused on coming to some sort of consensus for changes that operators can make within their own restaurants or restaurant groups? That's a hard one to answer because we are, you know, the all the advocacy work that we did in 2020 was really survival and um, the decisions that we had to come to uh, and and battles that we had to fight were were pretty uniformed. Whereas the the relief effort, the support effort, was also out of survival too, where we first started raising money for people who didn't have jobs, and our focus was was on that. And then as the pandemic lengthened, it was. How do we create a bus that um, brings vaccines to restaurant workers and where they live? Um, and I think going forward, it's basically, you know, knowing what what battles we're really going to fight in terms of um, change of policy and, and legislation, but then spending most of our time on how are we going to make lives better for all of our restaurant workers and how, to, how, how can we do it? So I, I think it's hard to say you know, 50, 50, 70, 30. Um, but I think going forward, we're going to have a list of initiatives um, that we're going to work towards to make the lives better of our of our people that make up the industry. And then hopefully the the changes that we can make through policy change will will also help make their lives better as well. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense to me. I'll tell you where the question came from is, you know, I let's take a topic that we're not really even talking much about today, if at all. I believe one of the big challenges of abolishing tipping for people who are interested in doing it is that it's very hard to get sort of a critical mass of restaurants, you know, forget nationally, like in one locality, right? So that if you're a restaurant that takes on a different price structure on your menus, you look out of whack to people who are still using a tipping system. Your prices look artificially higher, right? Even though at the end of the day, they're they're probably not. And I recently had Dave Nafeld of Kefico Restaurant in San Francisco and his partner, Matt Brewer on, you know, and they were talking about 
how difficult it is to come to any sort of mass consensus around a subject like that because it is different for each individual restaurant for for reasons that we don't even have time to begin to go into right now, let alone how it might play in different markets, right? And so I would imagine uh, kind of the clearest path for you all is probably, to use your word policy or, you know, the word I use, legislative. I don't know which one's the right word, but uh, to me, that does seem like probably the way that's the that's probably the path that's going to be the most the easiest one to bring more people along on is if you do try to find change in the tax codes and the way the legal infrastructure is set up for restaurants and those sort of areas. Andrew, is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I you know, Roar is a New York City based um, advocacy organization, so we're you know we're focused right now just on New York and making this in New York, but certainly. Uh, we hope that if we are successful with the, the legislative policy changes that we are advocating for, that the country as a whole will see um, that this is really a terrific way forward. You know, I don't, I don't know that we're at liberty right now to, to share the details of, of the project that we're, of all the advocacy that we're working on right now, but we will. But, it, it, you know, the goals are more equity between front and back of the house, better wages for both, and then working on changing some of the more punitive laws that prevent operators from paying better wages because their their margins are too thin. Are you able to give me an example of what a law like that would be for people who aren't you know, in the trenches like like Sean is, what's a law that's really kind of hampering operators from being able to do something like that? What we have to do first, and what what I've seen when entering these discussions, whether it's on a state, city, or federal level, it's a lot of education. And the education starts with how it's currently being done, our, our compensation structure. How it's currently being done um, is simply not... Uh, the fairest or even a rational way to do things. And it was, it was put in place in the mid-1960s, and, and it hasn't changed since, although our world has changed a lot. Um, and also, number two, education-wise, is just being in these, these conversations uh, and educating people on what the actual business model looks like right now and, and illustrating to decision makers that our labor costs are 40 to 45% of our sales in that labor cost is payroll costs, payroll tax costs, which are seven to 10% of our sales as well. Um, understanding that the, the model of a restaurant, if you are profitable at the end of the year, you're paying 4% because you're an LLC of your EBITDA to, to New York city. And just trying to, illustrate and verbalize the challenges that we're up against, but also letting people know that the way it's currently being done and the way we pay people is is simply not the fairest or rational way to do it. The lineup is brought to you by Mies. Here is one chef's thoughts on how this revolutionary recipe tool can help your business. Hi, this is Chef Franklin Becker 
Mies is this fantastic tool in the kitchen that we use, especially at Manhattanville Market, but actually we use it at all our operations at this point. It's a recipe development tool that allows you to do your costing and your prep all in one. It's just fantastic because if I don't have an ingredient or if I have a little bit of an ingredient, I can scale my recipes in real time down to meet whatever that ingredient is. I'll know the cost. I'll know all the breakdown. It's easy for my workers to get to it. It's just a fantastic, fantastic tool. And you know, my friend, Josh Shark, who created it, spent a lot of years in the kitchen. It was with Gray Coons for a long time. He knew what we needed in the industry. He knew what a recipe development tool required. And he put it all in one nice, awesome package. If I were you, I'd go to getmes.com slash Andrew. I would go for that if I were you. Something I always like to ask is what, you know, what can people out there do, right? So if, if, if I'm a and I'd love to take it from, uh, let's take three constituencies. I'm a diner. I'm interested in supporting some of the things that Roar is working towards, you know, things like wage reform, administrative relief, tax cuts and incentives for independent restaurants. These are things that you all talk about in, in, in some of your materials. What's the role of a diner in that? What's the role of a restaurant patron in that? If there is one, how, how do I be a, a good consumer citizen uh, who wants to do the right thing by restaurants and their workers? Well, I think that in 2020, what was so amazing was to see the support of that population that you just described. In in so many ways, they showed up for us in New York City, um, whether it was donating to Roar, the relief program, or or simply just being unbelievably understanding guests in our restaurants when we were opening back up with so many restrictions and just trying to do this restaurant um, job a new way in a new world. And that communication between guests and restaurant teams was was really an amazing time and hopefully will stick and will be the framework of, of how we can do things together going forward. And I also saw during our toughest moments when we were advocating things and needed to put pressure on people, um, them reaching out to state senators, council members, um, flooding the phone calls with uh, the governor's office and the mayor's office and even the president's office. All of that stuff helped so much. And it was, it was understanding when they were coming to dine in our restaurants, knowing that everybody was at risk and we were all going to try and get through it together in the safest way possible. It was showing up and donating to our relief fund when so many people were without jobs and paychecks. And it was helping when we really needed to put pressure and simply putting out on Instagram, here's a here's a, a number you could call, and they would do it. So I think um, there's many ways that our guests and um, community of patrons and followers and fans and community that that showed up in so many ways, and that's we're going to ask that forever, and hopefully it'll always stick that way. Anyone who's interested in supporting Roar should sign up for our newsletter on our website. Follow us on Instagram. Uh, we have a donate button. Every every little bit helps support our advocacy work. We announced a, a marathon team today that we're we're going to be running. Some of our members, our restaurant workers, will be running the 50th New York City Marathon. Thanks to Robinhood, who gave us some uh, numbers to use, and then some of our restaurant owners will be also running and fundraising to support uh, health and wellness initiatives for restaurant workers. So. 
That's another way to to support us. Sean will be running 26.2 miles. I hope I'll be running. I hope I'll be running all 26.2. It's just about getting over that finish line, Sean. <laughs> Andrea, what about as a, as a, you're the perfect person to ask, you, you know, as a journalist who's now the executive director of Roar, you know, journalists are supposed to be objective. You know, as I do, you cover the restaurant industry. It's hard to be purely objective. It's hard not to feel an affection for the people in it. It's hard not to be rooting for the overall, you know, the success of individual. It's such a personal thing you're covering, right? Putting aside for a moment the supposed objectivity of a journalist, what's the role for journalists in all this? That's a good question. I mean, my I've always looked at myself as, and I don't know if this is a thing, but as an advocacy journalist, um, when I see a problem that I think needs attention, I shine a light on it. You know, and that means interviewing people who are suffering or coming at an issue from many different angles so that people see the flaws in the system and can maybe use that article as an inspiration to to make change or to understand the industry better. And I think journalists right now who are covering our industry need to continue to really dig deep and talk to operators about the problems that they're having. I mean, I think one of the things that helped me become uh, someone who was really in touch with the industry was the fact that I would just, you know, I would talk to chefs and owners and find out, you know, what's going on. Just asking, you know, the, for instance, last week we had a, a really difficult situation happen when Governor Cuomo rescinded the state of emergency, which is great news that we're not in a state of emergency anymore. But then within 24 hours, uh, all restaurants and bars could not sell to go alcohol. And there was just no sensitivity to the fact that, you know, this is an industry that does not buy inventory today to sell tomorrow. The, their restaurants and bars had months worth of inventory that they purchased to provide to go alcohol, to provide cocktails and wine. Well, and I should, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're not just talking about the booze, right? You're talking about these people developed programs during the pandemic. You know, they bought the bottles that the stuff was going to go home in. You know, they bought the labels. Yeah, they, exactly. they, they made all the... Uh, you know, and a lot of it was done and with with uh, and yeah, and cocktails. yeah, the kits and the boxes and the and the and the tissue paper or the you know the the whatever they used to keep it from breaking in the box. Like that stuff was all that was a massive investment. It was, and then in in one day you're supposed to stop. So I appreciated. I think it was Pete Wells who wrote an article really slamming the governor and the legislature for not, or at least maybe not slamming, but at least really you know, interviewing people so that the, the general public understands here's an industry that has just been nearly decimated. And, you know, why not just throw another uh, log on the fire of their demise? I mean, it was just like, give me a break. So from where I sit, a journalist's job is to, you know, report that story very well and make sure that uh, we're making enough noise so that the legislature feels pressure to get back there this summer and pass a law that allows restaurants to continue to sell to go alcohol. And that's what we need to do. And we, you know, at Roar, that is one of the things that we are working on right now is getting a, a summer session together so that we can work on fixing this problem. 
Yeah. Well, I'm I'm correct, right? Roar was actually instrumental in in that uh, in that being uh, mm-hmm. something that was allowed in the first place. Correct. Yes. Most of our listeners are in the industry. What about you know the third constituency? I want to ask about. What about people out there who are in the industry? What is the a way or the best way for them to engage with and support the work you all are doing? I think just getting involved. We um, there's no barriers to entry with with what we're trying to grow with Roar. Anybody could be a part of it. Anybody could be a member. It does not have to be a restaurant owners association only. It's it's anybody in the industry that cares about it can be a part of Roar. We have newsletters that go out. We have you know, Instagram that we try to be very active with, and we have programs that um, that are going to be coming in the in the next couple months and year. That's just going to try to help anybody out in our industry move forward. And um, anyone's allowed to be a part of it. And there's no membership fees at this point. There's there's simply a um, an open door. Yeah, they can write to us at oh hello at roarnewyork.org. Is there anything that I haven't asked you guys about that you would, you know, if you had the ear of a couple thousand people in the industry? I mean, they're not all in New York, obviously, but is there anything you want to just put out there? We're on the cusp of something really transformational. And I think that out of darkness, for lack of a more poetic way of putting this, you know, we can find a lot of light and unity and the type of transformational change that we are advocating for. Um, we, we look forward to sharing with the community when we, when we have uh, sort of all our ducks in a row. And, um, and we really believe that we can make the restaurant industry a place where workers can thrive and be well and support families and be treated with in, in an equitable way. It's just, very, it's really, it's very exciting to think about what, what lies ahead. And um, it's a testament to Sean and Camilla Marcus and Adam and Dana Cowan, Adam Saper from Italy, um, who founded Roar and the, the 12 people on our steering committee who um, are fighting to, to try and keep their restaurants open and find staff and still make time to, you know, come together for hours long brainstorming sessions on legislative policy. So I, I hope the industry knows that they have people fighting for them and our door is open. Email me, Sean, reach out. We're here to help and support you. I have to tell you, I had Joshua David Stein on the show last week and we were talking about, you know, we were both very uh, taken with this notion of a reset. And we, the conversation we had, to be honest, was we both recently have had this sinking feeling, you know, that as restaurants are starting to be able to, you know, be open again in a very real way, as people are contending once again with all the daily struggles that are entailed in the business, uh, of course, there's also the staffing crisis that you just alluded to, Andrea, that this, you know, all these these things that people were talking about wanting to change over the last year, you know, he and I as observers of the industry, but, you know, people who do talk to a lot of people were feeling like, you know, that this this whole effort that every this this effort that everyone was talking about for the last year was maybe going to sadly fall by the wayside of uh, for understandable reasons, you know, because it is tough to run a restaurant on a daily basis. It's, it's easy to see how, how 
you know, doing what it takes to make change would be, you know, that's time that would be hard to come by and energy that would be hard to come by. I do find it very heartening to talk to the two of you and know that you and the, you know, the steering committee there and the members of, of Roar are trying to keep a, a grip, you know, on 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 the wheel of change. Because I I do feel like it would be a shame if, you know, we look back at, let's say, the 2020 to 2022 period, you know, 10 years on from now, it would be to me, I don't think tragic is too strong a word to say that that moment got away. I think it would absolutely be worse than tragic. I think you wasted the greatest opportunity of of crisis ever. And I think you look back in the history of our country and city, we've never wasted that great opportunity of crisis. And we've always been able to not go back to the way things were, but try to do it better and stronger. And I think New York City is in this really interesting moment right now where it needs to rebuild and our restaurant industry inside it absolutely needs to be rebuilt. And to me, I think our responsibility and great opportunity is to make life better for all restaurant workers who've spent their life's work making days better for people who they don't even know. And um, I also think by doing by doing that type of work for restaurant workers, restructuring our industry while both rebuild our city and industry at the same time is is absolutely imperative because we can't actually afford as a restaurant industry to go back to the way things were. It's just not possible. It wasn't possible um, in 2020 to continue the way we were, but it was also not possible in 2018 and 19. We were on a path towards failure as it was. And I think we really have to continue to fight now that we are at every seat at every table in our country and government to not let that happen. We have to do it or else our restaurant industry will not be able to be rebuilt. And if it's not able to be rebuilt in New York City, New York City simply will not come back better than when it was. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. <laughs> it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite <laughs> ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. Welcome back to the show. My thanks again to Andrea Strong and Sean Feeney for joining us. We do link to Roar's website on the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. So please click through to their site if you'd like to learn more, sign up for their emails, and or donate. And before getting to our feature interview with Franklin Becker, as we do every week in this space, we want to share some of the hottest and most intriguing jobs that our sponsor, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, or BMRS, is currently seeking great candidates for. As she did last week, BMRS Director of Operations, Jackie Lianza, phoned in to share those intriguing details with us. Here is our conversation. Jackie, welcome back to the show. As I predicted, you have survived the cut. You are back for a second consecutive week. Thrilled to have you back. I thought 
maybe this week, I know there's one or two jobs you're going to spotlight for people, but I also thought it might be interesting just to talk about process for a moment. You know, something that has come up in my conversations with Brad and also with you and other people at BMRS is that there can sometimes be a little bit of a hesitancy by potential candidates to even explore a job because they have certain concerns. One of the concerns I gather that comes up quite often is the notion that as in any career, you don't want your current employer to know that you're looking. Can you just speak for a moment about the kind of confidentiality standards that you all enforce at BMRS? So confidentiality is really important to us. We often work with candidates who are employed and in jobs. So we take that confidentiality piece very seriously. We would never contact someone's current employer. or There's really no way for that to, to harm them or get back to their employer. That is something that is of of the utmost importance to us. And I can actually speak to that from a personal perspective because Brad helped me with my job searches when I was a general manager and I was employed in my jobs. And there was never any concern that it was going to get back to them because there's no calling the restaurant or discussing with, with other people outside of our team and maybe the employer that they're interviewing with. And so also when we submit their resumes to our client, our client is very aware that their search is confidential. And then the other thing that comes up, and I just don't know if it's, it's assumed, I love comparing what you all do to the to real estate hunts. I feel like it's very, in some ways it's comparable, but you know, a lot of times, at least in New York where I live, if you're looking for a new apartment, it's the tenant that pays the broker. But in this situation, it is the potential employer that pays whatever commissions or expenses are associated with you all. Is that accurate? Yes, that's correct. So there's never any, any cost to the candidate associated with working with us. So they never pay us anything. We are paid for by our clients and it doesn't impact their salary. And then the one other thing I wanted to mention is this, I know you all have an applicant tracking system. That sounds you know, almost like something very high tech or, or scientific, but basically, as I understand it, it is simply a way that you all, let's say, for example, I'm a chef or a sous chef or a bar manager. Maybe I'm not looking for a job right now. I'm very happy where I am. But there's a dream scenario I have in my mind, right? I, if, if something came uh, available in Southern California, if something came about in Mexico, or if I'm on the West Coast and I've been kind of dreaming of, of a life change, I want to go to New York or I want to go to Chicago, people can connect with you all, am I correct with this, and share certain parameters of what their dream situation would be, and you all have a way of comparing that against jobs that come into your system. Yes, 100%. So... Our database, you know, we're really able to customize when the candidate is looking for and we can tag certain cities or maybe they want to work at a you know, James Beard nominated restaurant or they really love sushi and they're a sushi chef. So we have the ability to mark all those things and search them up through that database. And we very often do find that candidates reach out and maybe we don't have the perfect opportunity in that moment, but we're always keeping them in mind. And when that search comes up where we are looking for a sushi chef who wants to work in Austin, Texas, we can search through our database and their name would come up and then we'll contact them at that time. That seems super cool to me to know that somebody, at least somebody out there might be keeping an eye out for my dream job. Okay. So all that said, we're going to spotlight just two positions this week. One of them, I'm always fascinated by what we've been calling the outside the box jobs, jobs that aren't you know, kitchen bound or or aren't service bound. By service bound, I mean bound to like, you know, the rhythm of a normal restaurant day. You all are in the hunt for a R&D chef in Chicago. Can you tell us a little about that? I love Chicago. Chicago is my hometown. So I always love when we get to work on searches in the area. 
This is an award-winning group out there. They really set the bar for dining in Chicago very early on and went on to win various awards over the years with a variety of full-service concepts. And the chef that they're looking for would generally work out of their corporate test kitchen on recipes as they develop new concepts, but they may also occasionally spend time in their various Chicago locations tweaking existing menu items as needed. And my understanding, is this right? This is uh, this is a potentially interesting job for someone who's at a crossroads, who isn't sure what their next thing might be. This is a one-year hire. Correct. And it may be extended, but it, a minimum of a year of commitment is required. Right. But there's not an expectation necessarily that it would go beyond that. So if someone's at a point where they're looking for a change of pace, a breather, not sure what their next big move is or what their permanent long-term vision is for their career. This could be a very interesting way to spend a year. Absolutely. And then in Los Angeles, a non-kitchen job, this is a general manager position for an international fine dining group. Can you tell us about that, please? We're really thrilled about this one. This is a new client for us, but we've just been so impressed by what they've been able to do. And achieve internationally. They have 23 locations, all different concepts, and they really pride themselves on providing a stellar guest experience and high quality cuisine, craft beverage programs. And this is their first restaurant in LA. So they're looking for a GM who's really going to be the representative of the, of the company and spearhead that opening and build a great winning team. And my understanding also is this is a potential growth opportunity. They're going to be opening a couple of more locations over the next few years. Yes, absolutely. So great opportunity for someone who might be looking to move into more of a regional capacity. And with this concept, there is a focus on Mexican cuisine. So someone who's passionate about Mexican cuisine or culture would be great. And my understanding also is the benefits on this are pretty great, right? Salary is up to 130K and medical, paid time off, et cetera. Yes, that's right. Okay, well, Jackie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing some of the large-scale perspective on what you all do, and thanks for sharing these jobs. And as always, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are probably 100 or so jobs at any given time that listeners can peruse at your all's website at restaurant-solutions.com or on your Instagram feed, which is at b. MRS Food Jobs. Jackie Lianza, thank you for calling in. Thank you. Always fun to spend time with you, Andrew. My thanks again to Jackie Lianza for calling into the show. Again, whether to pursue a specific job or just to establish an ongoing dialogue for when your dream job crosses their desk, Brad, Jackie, and the entire BMRS team would love to hear from you and learn about what you are looking for. Please be in touch with them at their dedicated Andrew Talks to Chefs email, ATC at restaurant hyphen solutions.com or call 310-245-5108. However you reach out to them and whomever you are in contact with, be sure to tell them that Andrew sent you. This is an Andrew Talks to Chefs classic moment. On our Andrew Talks to Chefs Classic Moment this week, we're taking it all the way back to episode 16 with Chef Missy Robbins. Hearing Sean talk earlier in the episode brought back very fond memories to me of my interview with Missy in the semi-private dining nook at the wonderful Lilia Restaurant in Williamsburg, one of my very favorite places of the last 10 years. If I'm honest, I cringed a little listening back to it this morning because I made a lot of unnecessary little sounds while Missy was talking. What can I tell you? I was only 16 interviews in. I was still learning. I don't do that nearly as much now. I try to not do it at all. But I didn't want to let that deter me from sharing a little of that wonderful dialogue that we had. Here is a portion of our conversation in which Missy discusses the origins and the mission 
of Lilia. Lilia, for me, in the, in the most basic form, was what is the restaurant that I want to go to every day? And I always wanted to create a restaurant that where would I want to go on my nights off? Where, 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 what do I want to eat when I'm at home? What do, what do I want to drink? What, what's in, how do I want to be treated? Yeah. Who do I want to be my server? How do I want to feel when I leave the restaurant? And so it was this sort of culmination of a certain cooking style that I had developed over many years, but sort of, I really toned it down and pulled it back and, and sort of took many years of cooking at places like Spiaggia and Avoce where the food was very, very refined yeah. um, to keeping those same principles in the food of, of execution, but saying, how do, how do we make this really things that people want to crave? And that, that to me, when people kept saying, well, what kind, what, how do you want the food to be? And I just kept saying craveable. And I didn't yeah. know a hundred percent what that meant. I just, but it meant something to you. I know it, it, that I a... crave certain dishes or, yeah. uh, around, you know, I, I go to Isodi a lot and uh-huh. I crave very specific things there. And so to the, those restaurants to me at, at this point in my eating career are more important than kind of getting to the newest, hottest place. Yeah, um, sure. And so I wanted Lilia to have that feel. And I didn't know what those dishes would, would be, which is the funny part, because you design a menu and you say, oh, that's going to probably be the most popular thing on the menu. Right. And that's not what happened. So... I think like a very basic thing like chicken is a great example. I have a chicken thigh, leg and thigh here. We sell, I don't know, like four a night. Yeah. At a voce, I sold 50 something chickens a night. Um, and I think what happened here is there's enough other variety and the way the menu is designed, it gives people all these other opportunities yeah. to eat differently and not go to the thing that's safe but go to things that sound really tasty and i don't the chicken dish that we have here is awesome but i i don't care that it doesn't sell as well as as everything else i have it on because i like it i like to eat chicken i think it's great but i but it hasn't become this like important thing the malfadini was sort of put on which has become our the malfadini with pink peppercorns Mm -hmm. parmigiano reggiano and um and butter. It has three ingredients in it. That's it. Yeah. Um, it's a squiggly, long pasta shape. It's It's got awesome texture. It's got awesome sort of rusticity and bite to it. And I, I, I sort of put it on as a, as a joke to myself and said, I'm going to put on this pasta that's so simple. I wonder if people will like it. And it became the most Instagrammed thing in the restaurant. It became the thing that was the biggest seller. Um, it's it's now the second biggest seller. Um, so you never quite know what's going to resonate with people. Yeah. And I thought the rigatoni with spicy red sauce was going to be that thing. Yeah. And, and it's popular, but it's not the Malfadini. Again, we encourage you to please peruse our catalog of more than 200 past episodes on andrewtalkstochefs.com via the guest button at the top of our webpage, which will take you to an alphabetical catalog of our nearly 300 guests to date. So our feature interview this week is with Franklin Becker of F. Becker Hospitality. Franklin is a longtime New York-based chef and consultant who first rose to prominence at local restaurant back in the 1990s. He's been associated with such restaurants as Abe and Arthur's and The Little Beat. 
Among many other projects, he recently launched the Manhattanville Market Food Hall near Columbia University in Upper Manhattan. And we sat down last week for what turned out to be a very revealing, very raw heart-to-heart. From his Instagram, I see that Franklin is currently on his honeymoon, which is perfect because we talk a bit about his new marriage both early and late in our conversation. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Franklin Becker. Here you go. First of all, congratulations on this place. Thank you. I want to talk all about it in a minute. I first have to tell you, I had the craziest memory, something I hadn't thought of probably since it happened. Do you remember how you and I first met? No, but you certainly do. I ha- And I've <laughs> seen you over the years. I've run into you on the street. We used to go to sure. the same uh, Christmas thing every Absolutely. this like, late night Christmas yep. thing every year. Yep. It's never popped into my head until I was just driving over here. One of your very first jobs... I don't even know if I should name it because this was not a happy moment. Am I correct? Grace's Market? Grace's Trattoria. Yes. Which was owned by the people who owned Grace's Market on the correct. Upper East Side. And there was a critic. I guess I can say this. It's been long enough. Bob Lape. I remember. Wrote this nasty piece. Scathing. And at the time. But it wasn't about me. It was it no, was, it's about it was like against, the service. And I still remember like yeah, they put the wrong number against, of. It was ahead. also against Grace. And Joe Doria, it was like almost personal. Yeah, it was, it was one of those weird reviews. Yeah. And Philip Baltz, who's gone on to, his, he has his own company now, Absolutely. but he and I were colleagues. He had your guys' account. Yep. And he said, these guys are, st- not you, but the, these guys are steaming mad. Can you come? It was like a scene out of Mad Men. He's like, can you come to a meeting with me? Because <laughs> they're going ballistic over there. And I walked in and that was the first time I met you. That is amazing. Do you That's remember 1997. This? That's insane. Oh, my God. Yeah, but this was before some of the first places you got, not like there was a place yeah. called Local right Local after was, that. was yeah. my first kind of step into Yeah, like real chefdom. And, chef-dom yeah, yeah New know? York City chefdom. Yeah. Anyway, I hope it's okay. I mentioned it, but Absolutely. on the way over, no. I don't even remember his name, but the owner was like, when we got there, I've never, I rarely saw anyone so apoplectic oh, about a review. They were apoplectic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, that aside. Yeah. So can I start this interview in a weird place? Sure. I haven't seen you in a long time. We've barely ever sat down and talked like this, but I've been following your Instagram mm-hmm. and you're you're recently married. I am. And you seem like a very happy camper. I'm extremely happy. So this is personal, not professional, but can I ask you about this? Sure. Because people, I think, like to hear, you know, we've all had a rough year and a half. Sure. Tell me. I mean, you, you've been posting these things like, I married my best friend. and I did. This is amazing. And she's she's she completes me. Wow! You know she she is uh, just perfect in every way. I mean, and she's not perfect, which is what makes her perfect. I understand. You, know, you guys fit together. We fit together. Yeah, like, yeah. Have you known her a long time? No. Um, ironically, we met right before the pandemic, and the pandemic accelerated everything. Yeah. Because you know you're you're spending twenty four seven with somebody, and you just get to know their ins and outs very quickly. Yeah. So, if I, I think if it wasn't for the pandemic, we'd probably first be going into maybe engagement or or something. You mean but, like around now? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But because of the pandemic, it was just like, okay, what are you doing today? Nothing. What are you doing today? Nothing. Okay, let's do nothing together. Right. 
and it, it just became one of those. Got it. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And before we go back and start doing your like chronology and your life story, sure. tell me about this place we're sitting in today. We were talking before I started recording. I went to Columbia University. We're here in, what neighborhood is this technically? Manhattanville. Manhattanville. Is that a subsection of Harlem? Or is I, it its own? I believe so. It's, yeah. it's West Harlem. Yeah. Um, so we're around 130th and Broadway. Mm-hmm. Columbia is building this I mean, Columbia already had quite the expansive footprint here. Do you know they're the largest real estate landowner in the entire city of New York? I did know that, but only because I went there. Right. Because that's the kind of thing that you hear. The wealthiest is NYU because it's downtown. Right. But they have the most, and and by a long shot, have the Mm. most real estate. But Manhattanville is this neighborhood on the west side of the 125th Street train station the one uh, and then the river on the other side and it just dissects it it's it's a beautiful area you know they're they're building a high line here the manhattanville campus is going to stretch from 125th all the way up to 134th and it's going to go river to to the uh to broadway so incredible campus yep and we're sitting here in the jerome l green science center which is home to the zuckerman institute and of course, uh, my new creation, Manhattanville Market. How many different concepts are around that counter that we just so walked by? Is it horn, five? Around the horn is four concepts. Four. And then we're sitting in Oliva, what will be Oliva in September, which is the Spanish tapas restaurant, full yeah. service. Yeah. And this is, as you say, it's not done yet. I'm looking the bar. To, the bar isn't stocked, but it's built. It's it's actually backlit already. It looks mm-hmm. like if you you know you could you could open it tomorrow, except for certain things. A couple of couple of uh, bottles missing. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. No, it's barren. <laughs> it's barren right now. But but you you just were nice enough. I was waiting for you. Treated me to a, a falafel lunch. It was delicious. Oh, thank um, you. You know, it was. It's we str- have another location of that place downtown, at Van Dam. Freestanding. Uh, it's actually a ghost kitchen downtown. Oh, that's where your ghost kitchen And that's where we started it. Um, and then it's freestanding here. So you gave me a little tour. And again, you and I really don't know each other that well. I saw something about you when you did because you took me around the horn. These, these, there's like, you know, the four concepts here kind of go around. It's a counter that wraps around a yep. portion of the, of the room. Mm-hmm. And you introduced me to a lot of your chefs and cooks. Then we went down, you showed me the kitchen. But along the way, I really saw that you, you're not just a chef. You are a true blue operator. I am. You were, you asked one of your associates to, do, you know, clean up, I forget the term you use, but to hit the stair, the industrial stairway that customers don't see. This is behind the scenes. And the guy was like, we just did it two days ago. <laughs> I mean, but you were already noticing it starting to take on another layer of patina or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we walked by one guy who's t- tearing lettuce leaves for something and you said, tear them smaller. This is as you're giving me like the millis, you know, the super fast tour, right? You must have had like seven exchanges like that over the five minutes you spent showing me around. When I say this, you just said you are. This makes sense to you. I try to see everything you know i think what separates the seasoned person from from the novice is attention to detail and i think that there's always going to be slippage especially at startup and it's about making sure that your screws are always kept tight enough that if they're loosening even slightly okay you just turn it back the other way to ensure that quality remains high. I think for young chefs, it's important. There's always going to be a deviation between what you do and what your line cook does or or your counter person does. This is does. one of the great challenges of the profession, right? Absolutely. It's one of the defining things about uh, running, a, having a team in a restaurant. Of course. Yeah. But if you can keep that deviation small, then you'll be successful. 
but you also have to realize that that deviation is going to exist. If you don't realize that's going to exist, you're going to become manic and you're going to want to kill everybody that works for you. And you're going to eventually want to kill yourself. And I was in that level of, of mindset early on in my career. You had that level Absolutely. of perfectionism and that lack of understanding of this reality. hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I think when, when a restaurateur or a chef gets to the realization that, okay, there's going to be a deviation. What is my acceptable deviation? And it doesn't matter if you're Eric Repair or if you're Daniel Balud or if you're Jean George or Daniel Hume. All of them know that there is a deviation between themselves and the next step. The great ones, as in the ones I just mentioned, will keep that deviation you know, under 5%, yeah. right? The really good ones will keep that deviation under 10%. And then there's the rest of them, right? Yeah, well, this is one of those times where I think sports is a great analogy, sure. right? Because you, right before I came to see you, I was watching some tennis. Wimbledon's going on. And I had it on as I was working this morning. You can lose a set in tennis. You can still win the match. Absolutely. You know, and, and you can lose a point in a game. You can still win the game, right? 100%. And this is something I think when you talk about that, that manic mindset, I think that's people lose track of that. They, 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 have like a, they have an unrealistic expectation or even just hope. And they let it take over. And they, as, right, as opposed to just going, okay, when this happens, how do we immediately get it back? Right. How do I, pivot, how do I push it back into the, into the right direction? Right. And I think that. If you saw the way I, I, I do it with a gentle nudge. Yeah. I let people know that I see everything, but hey, you're responsible. Let's get it going. I don't want it to be that I have to literally do everything because I can't do everything. Yeah. You can't grow a business and do everything yourself. Yes. It's impossible. Yes. And the sooner you realize that, and maybe it's because I'm going to be 52 years old, I, I realize it now, but you, you, if you don't realize that, you won't be successful. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to rely on people. And so the way you treat people is the way people are going to treat you. And I have a stellar team because I treat them with respect and I treat them fairly. I'm not a pushover. I give them direction where they need direction, but I, I'm, I'm omnipresent. Even when I'm not here, they're thinking about me because they know what my standards are. And I think that's really important. You know, I stepped into a kitchen the other day. I was on a site tour trying to see if I would take over this place. And the level of grime that existed in the space was beyond cleaning. It was, okay, this was a gut job. What Gordon Ramsay would walk into and scream and yell. Right. And I, I say to myself, how do people let their restaurant get to that point? How can you be somebody who's willing to serve food in an environment like that? Yeah. I have no problems walking anyone through my kitchen because as you noticed, you can eat off the floors. Yeah. That is the way I keep a, 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 a kitchen. And you can look at gaskets, you can look at anything because it's important. People are trusting their lives with me. You know, they don't want to get food poisoning. Yeah. If you take it to the furthest extent possible, that is not an exaggeration. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And certainly their health. I mean, right. Food poisoning, 100%. even if you don't die, you can become violently ill. Absolutely. It's happened to me. It actually it's happened, happened to, to me a few months ago at a very successful, well-respected restaurant. It's a place I happen to like. I think I got a piece of, like a bad piece of, sea, of shellfish. Yep. 
happens. But it does. There's certain things that yeah. happen even in the best of restaurants yeah. that is beyond your control. Yeah. And there's certain things that happen that are within your control. Right. So my uh, ethos is control the controllables. Right. Always. Yeah. Right. I love that. And I even have, I don't know if you noticed, I have a, when we were in the basement, I have a sign up and it's about watch your words as they become your actions. I did not see it. You know, okay. So it's, it's really quite poetic and it's kind of what I live by and I should have it memorized, but I don't. So I'm just going to pull it up. It's watch your thoughts for they become words. Watch your words for they become actions. Watch your actions for they become habits. Watch your habits for they become character. Watch your character for becomes your destiny. And I put it at the bottom of my stairs of every kitchen that I do because I want people to walk up there and remember that they're representing Manhattanville Market in this case or whatever operation I have. They're representing me. Yeah. And I want them to represent me in the right way. I want them to talk to one another in the right way. I want them to respect the food. I want them to respect the customer, you know, which I mean, I don't even use the word customer. I use the word guest because ultimately at the end of the day, everybody that walks in can become an ambassador of the restaurant. So I, I really look at it very, 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 very carefully like they're in my home and I want them to feel welcome. And I want my employees to feel welcome and I want them to, to come in, you know, smiles are free. So I want them to come in and give a smile, right? you know, to my guests. It's important. I mean, you came up at a time, Franklin, when this was, you know, this was not necessarily the prevailing mindset. Did it take you? You have a wry smile as I say that. You're looking off. You're thinking about something. I, uh, I've gotten abused. There, there are moments abused. that are coming to your mind as I make that statement. Yes, I will not share those. But. That's fine. I wasn't going to pry, but but you're ma- you're, you you agree with me? Absolutely, hundred percent. At what point in your evolution did you start honing? The, you're just you're you're describing a very well thought out philosophy that you have. Like I'm hearing you talk, and I'm like, this guy should be giving talks about this at conferences. Like you've really thought about this. I'll tell you, I didn't always think about this. I did come up in a tough era, you know, 80, late 80s, early 90s, very abusive time in the industry. And I think when my son was born, was 1999, and then he was diagnosed with autism in 2001. I think that was the awakening moment for me. From 99 to 2001, I probably went through close to 100 workers at local. It's my way or the highway. And we should say for context, that was not a big restaurant. Not a small restaurant. It was restaurant. 165 seats. That place had 165 yeah. seats. Well, you guys packed them in. Yeah. It was 165 seats. The footprint seats, wasn't enormous. And we would do 165 covers pre-theater okay. alone. And we would do it, you know, Judy Schmidt was my pastry chef at the time, top 10. Um, I've always had the luck of having great pastry chefs, but she was incredible. And William Grimes gave us an incredible review. Food Arts, uh, you know, New York Times, I think I was in 16 times in 99. It was, it was just, and it all went to my head. I was so full of myself. I and nobody back, at that time, we should say, and it sounds very PC now for me to say this and for you to talk about all this, but nobody at that time was going to probably stop you from letting it go to your head. Oh, no. Of course not. That's just it the way was it the was. Norm. That was the way it was. It was the yeah, norm. Yeah, 100%. And I, was, I was abusive, you know. I, I was just like every other chef that, that I learned from. And then my son got diagnosed with autism and it made me look at things very differently. It made me realize that people 
have different strengths and different weaknesses. And if you concentrate on what they can't do, that's what you're going to get. But if you concentrate on what they can do, and then you, you help them to learn the things that they can't do, it'll be much better. You'll be much better off. And over the next 21 years, uh, since he, since he's born 20, going to be 22 years, I've evolved. I'm a happier person. My staff feels that energy. They thrive off of that energy. I have workers that are with me 12 and 13 years. You know, my core group group is with me three, four years already. Why? Because I treat them properly and because I play into their strengths and I help them grow their weaknesses. I work in a very um, collaborative manner. It doesn't matter who you are on my team. You have a voice. And I think that's the difference. Being a father of two boys and now a stepson, I feel it's very important to give them a role model of, you know, hey, this is this is how you're supposed to act. It's very easy to get lost in the day to day of your life and not set aside enough time for other things. I try not to do that. For a long time, it was career, 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 career. And that was the only thing that mattered. Can I get a third star? Can I get a Michelin star? Like whatever it was. Can I win best new restaurants in America? Sure. So I did it. What did it do? Right. You're still going to die. Right? I'm still going to die. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean. You still go home at night. Can, can uh, we talk yeah. frankly here? The generation of workers that we're faced with today is very different than the generation that we were faced with yesterday. There's a sense of entitlement. There's a sense of reward for a job they're supposed to do versus a job well done. When we were growing up, you didn't get an award unless you were first, second, or third. There was no trophies for fourth place. It just didn't exist. Now there's trophies for every place. And the worker's mentality is such that they want to do the least amount of work for the most amount of reward. So how do you tap into and break that mindset? And the only way you can do it is by working and setting the tone yourself and by making sure that the people you place in leadership roles do exactly the same as you. I don't think it's a bad generation. I think it's a misguided generation. I think a lot of it has to do with technology. You mean when you say technology, you mean like social media? Absolutely. When you have a guy going out, doing some YouTube posts, and making millions of dollars, or you have a person playing a video game making millions of dollars, why do you want to go to school? Why do you want to pay your dues? I can be 15 years old and playing video games for the rest of my life. So wait, you asked me if we could talk real, right? Yeah. Okay. And I'm not even saying this as a sidebar. There's a part of me that worries about you saying what you just said publicly. Okay. Because you, there's a whole school of thought right now that this notion of paying dues is an outdated notion, that that's a, a manipulative way to get people to work for you for little or no money. See, I disagree because I think part of paying dues is gaining experience and it's experience. I'm, I'm not talking about monetary I'm not talking about whether you're a talking about a work make, ethic. Yes. Yeah. I'm I, not talking no, about I understand what you're person, saying. I'm just saying there's such a hair trigger right now. I know there is. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm not worried about being outspoken because I've always been outspoken, whether it's as an advocate for autism or for childhood cancer or anything else that I do fundraising wise, 
I've always been outspoken, so I'm not worried about speaking my point of view. I don't think, I'm, I, in, in fact, it's not that I don't think, I know I'm not talking about wage requirements or, or you know, I, I'm not talking about wages. I'm talking about work ethic. I'm talking about the willingness to quote unquote pay your dues and learn skills from the ground up that are necessary in forming you as a chef if that's what you want to be. Well, I think you're also, are you not talking about a, a fire to be the best? A fire in your belly. To be the best. Yeah. 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 And I don't see it as often now. I mean, sure, there's the the 10% of restaurants or the 5% of restaurants, actually, I'm sorry, the 1% of restaurants that still attract those people into their mix. But the general public doesn't attract that. And the, the general restaurant doesn't attract that. And so what is left over is a poor work ethic in general. And that's a breeding ground for, in my opinion, what is a cancer in this industry today. Which is what, mediocrity? Yeah, the acceptance of mediocrity. The acceptance of I'll do that tomorrow. I'll get to it the next day. The sense of urgency that's lacking. There is a need for people to drive themselves and push to be in the upper echelon. That takes time. Time is what I'm talking about when I say paying your dues. You can't get to the top unless you're willing to climb the mountain, okay? And when you get to the top of the mountain, you can see that there's other mountains higher and you have to be willing to climb that mountain and then move to the next one and the next one and the next one. If that's what you want. If that's what you want. If you want to accept mediocrity, fine but I don't want mediocrity in my business because it's not who I am. So I, I look for people who have drive. I look for people who want to be the best. And that's why I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to attract an inner core team that does have those same kind of mindsets. Yeah. All right. Well, I thank you for all that. Yeah. Thank you for all that. You know what I'm saying, though, when I describe it. Like, I know exactly what you're like, saying. I don't want to see a, a Twitter feast. I don't want to see people feasting on Franklin Becker on Twitter because you said this stuff. There is pushback against this whole mindset. There is. You know, I, I, I hear you. I, I do. And, and I, don't think, I don't think there should be because I'll tell you why. Because the cost of milk is a lot greater today than the cost of milk was when we were growing up. Because the cost of a, of a home is a lot more today than it was when we were growing up. And if you want to afford luxuries in life, you have to be willing to work for those. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's going to be that 1% that gets lucky and strikes gold because they're great at playing video games or they're great at uh, social media. Kudos to them, but it's not everybody. In fact, it's hardly anybody. And you have to work to get ahead. I mean, you're sitting here with this new thing. I just watched you do a little tour. You know, you were, this is not a complaint. I waited a little bit to start the interview because you were having a meeting. 
I'm two years older than you. I, I'm working at least as hard now as I've ever worked in my life. You know, I still want to, you talked about the mountain thing. Like I still, I, I think most people will look at me and go, he's got a pretty good career for a writer, you know? I'm trying to get to it. There's another level I have in mind right now. Of course. It's very specific. I know exactly what I can't talk about most of it, but there's stuff I'm working on, but I have to work on it while I'm doing the stuff that, you know, pays for our house and is going to hopefully pay, you know, pay, put my kids through school starting mm -hmm. next year. Right. But there's other stuff I want to do. Right. I totally relate to what you're saying. I totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. All right. Let's go all the way back. You grew up okay. in Brooklyn. Yes. We're in Brooklyn. Midwood. Okay. So... You know, I, I was reading up on you to come talk to you today, and I, I, I felt a, 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 at some point, because all your biographies that I read, they all start the same, and I, I felt a twinge of sympathy for your dad, because <laughs> the origins of your cooking, as it's explained in this biography that's been, you know... My mother my mother had a stroke when your, I was seven. Your mom had a stroke, yeah, and your, your, your dad became the house cook, and Horrible. you're shaking your head now. So all I've ever... All, I read all this stuff about you, and all literally all I know about your dad is that he was a terrible cook. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible. <laughs> but tell me... Can you tell me something? This is why you started cooking, right? Uh, yeah. So can you tell me, tell me about your dad? Tell me something nice about your my dad. My dad, you know... <laughs> My, my I dad feel so was... bad for this guy in the Franklin Becker origin story. He is just a bad cook. That's all I know about this my, guy. My dad was a hard worker. Uh, he was an architect, interior designer. Um, very, very hard worker. Worked six days a week most times. Supported four boys. Well, well, three boys. Uh, my my brother, when I was prior to me being born, uh, passed away at like fourteen months old. And so my parents, basically, I was the child that was to make my mother feel better again. Um, so I was born and I was, you know, precious to my mother um, for sure. And, you know, my father was, was a tough guy. You know, he was, he was a, a paratrooper during the Korean War. Um, he, was a, he was a tough kid from Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, just always worked. Uh, worked hard. Um, you know, when I was seven, as I said, my mom had a stroke. When I was uh, 12, she had cancer. Um, my father then took ill. Um, but, you know, he took ill and he was laid up for like 10 months with, with uh, multiple sclerosis. And it was my bar mitzvah time. And I went into the room and I said, Dad, I said, you don't need to get me a bar mitzvah. I said, I just hope that you're better, you know, that you get better. And he got up and he went and threw me a bar mitzvah and he did a kazatsky at the bar mitzvah, which was very hard for him to do. I don't know what that is. Sorry. It's a, I'm a bad, I'm a very it's a bad Jewish, Jew. It's a, a Jewish dance, Jew. kind of Russian Jewish dance where they kick. Oh, like with, the, with the arms folded yeah, and exactly, the whole, he did exactly. that, huh? Wow. And this is he, a tough guy. Very tough guy. And he did that. And, um, you know, I came after my bar mitzvah and we sat there and I was counting all the money because back then they, every, everybody did cash and I'm counting all the money on the bed and I looked at it and I, and I, I was 12 years old. And I said, Dad, I said, this is for you. I said, all I want is Atari 800. And from the age of 14 on, you know, I pretty much, all, me, my brothers, we all worked, you know, and we 
were entrepreneurial. I had a t-shirt business during college. What um, kind of stuff, like rock and roll stuff or no, trippy like, stuff? Like, like uh, what kind of t-shirts? Mostly fraternity letters and things like that. Okay. And, and um, you know, I did funny t-shirts and- So you were a hustler. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, I did anything possible to make a buck, to take some weight off of my parents. Yeah. You know, so my parents gave us a good life, but it was hard, you know, for, for them. You're describing an awful lot of turmoil and oh. trauma for a kid. Were you, you talk about it with great perspective now? I didn't always. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Were you like, were you, were you angry as a young man? Or whether or not you could have even I called it that. Phase. Were you I like, were you a anger? You did. 100%. Yeah. Sure. Like how did, what kind of kid were you growing up with all this turmoil? Yeah, no, we had an incredibly tumultuous uh, household. And how did that manifest itself in you? Like, were you, uh, I mean, I have to think. You a combination. Um, yeah. Definitely short fuse. Yeah. Um, definitely, you know, some anger anger management issues that makes total sense and and you know as i got older and i went through divorce i went through a, a son with autism i went yeah. through a son who almost died i went through some lean years i went through some 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 successful years and still still going thank god i went for therapy the telltale sign and i i think this is pervades our industry in general our industry accepts everybody yeah. It's beautiful. It is. But there's also a lot of... It's a very stressful industry. And there's a lot of people who manage that stress with drinking mm -hmm. or with drugging. There's a lot of people who manage that stress with anger. And they use the kitchen as a form of therapy. But it's not always the best form of therapy to use. It's not necessarily therapy. It's an outlet outlet yeah okay better right not well, therapeutic but that's like that's the receptacle for, for a lot me, of cooking stuff. is therapeutic okay but it actually it, it's it's when i'm the most centered content calm yeah sure right um and i think you could probably say the same for most of my guys yeah but yes it's an outlet but i think that therapy is something that for a long time especially in our generation people were ashamed of i don't think there's anything to be ashamed of I think it's a necessary thing. If you feel it's a necessary thing for you to go through. You, Therapy. You yeah. You should go through it. And for me, I went through it. And I, I went through some some things, something called EMDR. I've done EMDR. Okay. So we should it, explain what this is. EMDR sure. is a, a, a psychotherapeutic technique where, I don't know if this is always the case, but the therapist I saw, they, they play sounds. Uh, Oftentimes, it is something like the sound of a train or a, an automobile, and you imagine yourself. You, you basically, you get into put into a state of semi-hypnosis, right? And you imagine yourself looking out a window, and it it, it, it relaxes your mind. It does it achieves something. It it kind of lowers your inhibitions and barriers. And then, if you engage in conversation at a time like that, your defenses are down, and you can very often make connections and reveal things to yourself and to your therapist that maybe you wouldn't in just sitting in a normal face-to-face. -face. Is that accurate? Is Absolutely. that how you understand and, it? And, and it's correct. You yeah. know, it, 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 it helped And it me. can be very powerful. I it's mean, almost to the powerful. point, like I mean, the it, first time I did it, it was, um, I was almost like, it was too much. Like it was like, 
touching a hot stove. Oh, for like me it, too. Yeah, I was for like, whoa, 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 what just happened? Oh, what did no, I just for say? Me too. And, and I, I felt shed a lot of tears revealed. through it. Yeah. You know? um, and a lot of what touched on was, you know, um, my mother's illness or my father's illness, you know, touched on a lot of very, very hot buttons for me. Sure. My divorce, uh, my feeling of inadequacy when my son was born autistic and I felt like I failed my son. You know, it was a lot of turmoil, you know, is the best way. And, and I'm at ease with it all now because I realize a lot of those things were out of my control. So that's why I want to come full circle and say, control the controllables, because there's always going to be curves in the middle of your day. And the best hitters hit a curveball. Anybody could hit a fastball down the pike. But can you hit a curve? Can you hit a, a, a screwball? Can you hit a slider? And those are the ones that make it to the major leagues. Right. So I think becoming one with yourself and becoming happy and content with yourself will ultimately make you a better leader for future generations. Yeah. And I just want to impart that knowledge and that strength into the younger generation and get them to say, hey, you know what? Mediocrity is not okay. Complacency is not okay. Drive. Drive towards something that you want and you can achieve it. If you don't have the skills today, we'll give you the skills. We'll help you get them. But you just need to take that first step across the street and let me know that you want it and I'll give it to you. The other thing that is so interesting to me about what you're saying is... I feel like this, tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like this must also inform this point of view we expressed a few minutes ago, which was, you had a tough childhood, you know, you, and you came through it, you know. But other kids have tough childhoods no, too. No, I understand right? that, but I imagine you probably have a lower tolerance for things like excuses or things like that. I imagine you, because you were able to overcome this thing you're describing. You know, which to me just sounds, I had it very easy. You know, I hear about a childhood like yours and I'm like, I don't know what my life would have been like if I had to go through any of that. I don't know. But then, but then I take a flip and I say, what about the, the childhood where you lose a, a parent or you lose a sibling? Right. Or you, Could always be worse. Or you're, yeah. or you're, God forbid, growing up in an area where there's gangs or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Things could always be worse. Yeah. So my outlook is, you know what? Yes, my son is autistic, but he's a beautiful kid. Yeah. He's learning to speak. He's sharing thoughts uh, for the first time with a device. He's uh, always happy. You know, he's the light of my life. Yeah. So you know what? I don't know if you remember. I, I ran into you guys once in the East Village. I do I think it's the only that. time I met your son. You guys are beautiful together. Thank you. Yeah, you really are. Thank you. So what was the importance, you know, if you start cooking as a kid, right, with everything else that was swirling around you, okay, your dad wasn't a very good cook, you must have had some relationship to food if you, a lot of kids would have been like, okay, my dad's not a good cook, but, you know, here's my dinner, I'm going to eat it, or I'm going to open a can of SpaghettiOs, but you decide to start cooking. Like, what was your relationship to food prior to your mom's stroke? I loved to eat it. You did. And my mother was a great cook. Okay. And when she was recovering, I was her hands in the kitchen as well because oh, okay. um, she was paralyzed. So uh, when she got her stroke, she went into Mount Sinai at the time 
and a medical student took it upon themselves to give her a spinal tap and they hit her spinal cord. And so they paralyzed her on her left side and she was paralyzed for a year and a half. And basically she had to learn to read again. So I would read to her. Um, and that's how I learned to read more. Um, she had to learn to speak again. She had to learn to walk again, Rusk Institute. Um, and she eventually started to become a jogger and started to run, you know, mini marathons and like three miles, five miles, that type of thing. Your parents but, are tough, man. Your parents are. Well, what choice did they have? Think about it. No, there's a, a choice. No, no, no. Hold on. Think about it for a second. You've got three small kids. Yeah. You have to feed them. You have to support them. You have to clothe them. Yeah, but all the more okay. reason not to be someone who got to a point where they could run a mini marathon. That's what I'm saying. Well, like there were plenty of re uh, justifications no, for not doing no, that. But, but guess what? My parents were children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, my grandfather was a tough guy. Yeah, you had to do what you had to do. You know, you you worked. Um, we didn't grow up rich. You know, we grew up middle class. Um, if you wanted something, you had to work for it. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that as I become more and more successful in life, it's something that I, I realize, right? Like, sure, I could afford to drive a, a, a Range Rover or a Mercedes or even a Maserati if I wanted to. But I drive a Mazda. I don't care about material things. I do live in a nice home but I don't care about material things as much as other people do. You know, I care about, you know, can I keep my team together during, during the pandemic, which I did off of my back, you know? Well, and also you're just, you know, when you describe this childhood of like, you know, you and your brothers, anything you could do to make a buck and kind of hustling and all this, I think there's two ways to respond to that. One is when you do make money, right. Then you want to have everything and be, you know, like be materialistic to use your word. Right. I think the other way is it's just more important you to have money in the bank and a sense of security. Like I'm never going back to that. Correct. Because I didn't. Even have though that you're probably, you know, not right. Even though knock on wood, you're probably well past that act being a real concern, unless you really went off the rails with money. Fine. Right, but you know, it's probably not something you need to be that no, worried but it about. Was, but it was for a long time, right? Like when your child is diagnosed with autism and you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars every year on medical and educational expenses. By the time he was uh, 12 years old, I was out of pocket for a million and a half dollars. You know, think about how much money you have to earn in order to get to that million and a half dollars. So I mortgaged my house. I took a, 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 another mortgage on top of the mortgage. You know, you, you do everything you have to do because- It's your kid. This is my kid. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. So I have to be responsible and I look at my core group as my family. So my job is to be that father and to make sure that, hey, everybody's okay. And that's why I have a great relationship with my team because that's who they are. Same way, same mentality. Do you hire for that? Like, do you try to find, you're describing a very hyper-developed culture within your company. Do you, and beyond somebody's skill set, I mean, I guess to some extent, any collaborative job you're going to hire for someone who's going to fit in, right? But if, I feel like you probably have to a little more than anyone else. You're describing, I think the word 
this is something people have been talking about for the last year and a half, right? The word family and restaurants maybe gets overused in a lot of contexts. It's I don't think we've learned in the last year and a half. Eh, it gets overused. Maybe maybe it wasn't really the family everyone thought they were in, right? But you seem to really believe in it as a concept, as a I philosophy, do. as an operating principle. Does that make it? Do you, is that something you look for when you bring new people into the fold? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at that board up there. That board actually describes where it says community right over here to, to yes. your. Yes. Yep. That board describes everything about our company. It is, in a nutshell, who we are. Kevin and I are, are you know, great friends. We go, our he's wives your, get he's along. He's your what, director of ops? What's he's he's um, vice president of culinary. Vice president of culinary. Yeah. So him and I um, go to each other's houses. We celebrate you know we, we go out to dinner with our wives um you know we are really good friends we all have that relationship you know where we watch one another uh chris scott was my sous chef 16 years ago um and now i back him in business it's a it's that sense of family and he even said to me he's like you know he's like i don't worry with you and that's a good thing because I don't worry with him. Meaning what? You don't worry like the, we don't worry about like what are you gonna? Yeah, you're gonna stab each other in the back, or you're gonna he's gonna not, like it's not run gonna, off and like poach right. half your team. That's no, not gonna happen. No, unless you are going to be a person who will stab me in the back. If you're gonna be a person who's gonna stab me in the back, then yes, I will break out my chef's knife and it'll <laughs> go straight in your heart. Um, 100%. But if you're going to treat me the way I'm going to treat you, we are going to be together for a long time. You know, my GM worked for me, uh, you know, at, at, at Little Beat. Uh, so now it's, you know, eight years our relationship. You know, Tomas, my, my um, lead prep guy, 12 years our relationship. You know, that's what it's about. Dan, our, you know, uh, Kevin's right hand is uh, four, four years now with us. Uh, he was 16 years with Mario Batali before that. Um, you know, that's, the, that's what we look to bring. You know, people that are not afraid to clean floors or scrub dishes or, or anything. Yeah. And they're also great cooks. And they're also great people. Right. You know, so I, I want that in my family. I want that culture. Yeah. I can't believe it. We've been talking almost an hour already. We've barely <laughs> talked about the food, right? So here's, here's a question I want to ask you. You've done a lot of very different things. Like you described, you know, we were talking about local early on. You know, you were doing the, you know, the big city, New, you know, New Capital. York. Uh, Capital. And you've worked with some big groups in your time. Yeah. I created, you, I, w I was created the culinary programs for the M group. Right. So I had Avon Authors and Catch, yep. Lexington Brass. Yep. Yeah. And then Little Beat, which Little grew Beat. out of your own health mm -hmm. stuff. You're, and I Hungry can, Root, um, manufacturing, uh, you know, just had a Series C valuing the company at $750 million. Yes. I co-founded that. You yes. Know? And now you're here. There's four concept. Well, five, if you count five. this restaurant, five yeah. concepts under one roof. Mm-hmm. And another two different concepts downtown at my ghost kitchen. Yes. 
and four more hotels opening. Yeah, I'm busy. So, but here's my question for you: Is there? And I don't want this to come out wrong because I don't mean this at all in a negative way, right? But for you, is there a thread that unites all these different concepts and makes them Franklin Becker concepts? Because yes. it's so, it's so, you know what I'm, you know what I'm trying to say. There is. It, it's they're, they're it's so it's so dispersed, right? It's so diverse, rather the, yeah. the types of food you're doing, even here under one roof. Yeah. So you know, I had falafel. You have pizza here. This yeah. is going to be like you said a tapas place. What so makes it Franklin Becker? They're flavor forward. Okay. And the quality of ingredients that I work with are uncompromised. That is what is the difference. And, you know, you ate the pita and the falafel and the hummus. And, Delicious. Yeah. And you downed it. And you were like. <laughs> kind of embarrassingly. Because you yeah. kind of have, you're being generous as you are, but you also <laughs> needed a few more minutes for your meeting. Sure. <laughs> and you gave it to me. And then like a minute later, you looked over. <laughs> I, was cl- I was cleaning my table. But yeah. my point was not to embarrass you. My point was to say, hey. That was a superior plate of food. It was great. That you ate, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of attention to detail. 100%. Yeah. And that's what it's about. Yeah. Like the pita, for example. They they had the dough. Because I you introduced me to the cook who was putting it together. Yeah. Right? He was like brushed. He's our chef here. He brushed it with olive oil. Mm-hmm. And then he dusted it with, what's that? Myth? Duca. Duca. Yep. Dusted it with Sesame Duca. Duca. Yep. And then it goes freshly into the oven. There's not finished ones sitting around, right? Yep. And And that was just the pita. Right. That's before you get to the falafel, the hummus, the uh, what was it, tabbouleh that was in the middle? Uh, what was no, that it was little just salad? A Israeli chopped salad. Little Israeli chopped salad. Right. And then you came over and you explained to me that uh, you know you put the what's it? I really should know the skug in the falafel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is all. Yeah. I mean, this is making your point, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's the difference, right? It, it's you know how can I take something that I've had before and make it better and I think that's what I try to do here and what I try to do in all my restaurants and all my concepts and everything that I touch is try to make it that much better and if I can achieve that then I'm successful do you believe you could do any kind of food you want yes you do you hit the books you you do a lot of trial and error a lot of art a lot of of R&D you travel oh yeah extensively and then you make it your own mm-hmm. yeah because and i believe that any chef in my kind of league could do the same mm-hmm. it's a matter of i don't know if i agree with you i don't want to be a rude host you really think like when you describe what you just said about what you do you know who it reminds me of oh. uh, i guess maybe it's probably around the same age I've always felt like Laurent Torndell is a similar kind of talent. Yeah. Laurent could do anything. I've said this for years. You give Laurent Torndell, we want an Indian concept in two weeks. He'll go off. He'll read everything. He'll test stuff. He'll come back and he'll give you like a, an audition menu and you'll just be like, oh my God. Right. Right? Does that, compa- yes. does that, yes. I don't want to say comparison, but okay, does that so parallel make sense? Yes. Floyd but that's, Cardoze was Floyd able was to somebody do that. like that. Um, but see, but I think, like the like Michael I, Michael Anthony can probably do anything like that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, no disrespect. He's a good. He's a friend of mine. But I just haven't. I don't know that I've seen him spread his wings in that way. Like I don't you've know done that it. He's you've done so many varied things yeah. successfully. Yeah, and that's what I mean. But okay. I think I, th- I, 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 mean, I I'm trying to compliment, compliment you. I, <laughs> no, I, compliment and I you. thank you for the compliment. I, I think a lot of people have a much narrower lane in which they can excel. 
Yeah, they could do okay doing other things. You know what I think it is? Maybe they have a much narrower lane in in which they've chosen to excel. Maybe. Yeah. That's possible. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I do believe that if you take, um, I'm trying to think of my contemporaries. If you if you take a George Mendez, or if you take a Missy, or if yeah, you Missy's take, an interesting. Or if you take, George is interesting too. You know, yeah. if you take them and you put them into the same conversation, they would be able to figure it out. Or Akhtar Nawab. Yeah. Um, you know, they would be able to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, Tom Colicchio. Um, you'd be able to figure it out and be able to to create something that's going to be superior. I mean, I guess you make a point, right? Because you know my favorite Bobby Flay restaurant was, was Bolo. Bolo, <laughs> sure. Bobby's listen. Bobby's a great chef. Underrated I worked for chef. him. I worked for him. Underrated. You know, early chef. on in my career. Incredibly underrated chef. Absolutely. Yeah. Him, uh, David Walzog. Yeah. Um, no, people won't. He just retired. I don't know if you saw that. I know, I saw. David Walzog used to, was the original chef of the Strip House restaurants in New That's York. Right. And before that, he was one of the Arizona 206. pioneers of the Southwestern thing. That's right. Arizona 206. I worked at 206. Yeah, great. Yeah. Re- very important forgotten restaurant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that was, but he's a guy. Yeah, you're right. And then he went off to Vegas and did two steakhouses yeah. for Steve Wynn and, yeah. and was very successful for yeah. 20 years. Yeah. 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 But you know, there's certain chefs yeah, you make out a point. there, yeah, right? who could do anything. It's, yeah, it's could they do everything on our level? Maybe not. You know, but but they certainly could cook. Yeah. You know, but it's more than cooking. I, I think, especially nowadays, the industry is way more than just cooking. The industry is about people skills. It's about making sure your your passing something on to the next generation. I'm 52. I'd like to be retired by 60. Um, I hope to be retired by 60. When I say retired, doesn't mean I'm going to stop working. It just means I'll be in a comfortable position where I feel I don't have to work, but I will. That's not retirement. Yeah. Again, I don't want to be a rude host. <laughs> no, you know what? It's retirement I don't know how to break it to you, mind. but that's not retirement. It's retirement in my mind. I, you know what? Right now, I still have to work. Psychologically. Psychologically. Yeah. And reality-wise, I think I still have to work right now. But you clearly love it still. That's the thing. I, I walked do in love here. It. And did I see on your Instagram, did you wake up this morning in the Hamptons? Did you just do an event last night in the Hamptons? I did an event last night in the Hamptons. Did you yeah. come back late or you came I back I came today? back uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning. Okay, fine. But then here you are. I was at a meeting, I was at a meeting at 10 o'clock in Astoria. Oh, this is what I mean. And you yeah. look fresh as a daisy. You seem very centered. You know, I am. You're, 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 you're. It's my wife. She does it for really? me. Really? Yeah. I, I'll tell you, she, she grounds me. But that's very new. It is. It's a year and a half. Uh, you know, yeah, a year and a half. That you met. We met in January, right before the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. And our first date was February 4th. And we met on Bumble, of all places to okay. meet. And I had never been on it and she had never been on it. And I was coming out of a 10 year relationship. We, we met and I said, do you want to go for a drink? And she was like, sure. I, you know, and then I said, you know what, better yet, let's go for karaoke. And she said, absolutely. And the reason why she chose, she said, absolutely is not only does she like to sing, but she figured if I was a boob, then at least she would have a fun night singing songs and it wouldn't be that bad. Wait, what kind of move is this? To That's a bold move. I could sing. You can sing? Oh, yeah. 
So like four really hours, like properly oh yeah, no, sing? I could properly sing. Did you sing in high school or something? I, uh, Did you have a band? I minored in um, in musical theater in college. Wow, so you were a ringer. Yeah. So I figured, <laughs> all right, I'll impress her. But meanwhile, <laughs> she could sing. So so we uh, we go and four hours later our date ended, and then we went on our second date and thirteen hours later our date ended, and we haven't been apart ever since. That's so amazing. Yeah, she That's works amazing. with us. Uh, oh really? You brought yeah, her. She heads the... our new business development and does what all was my her social media. She does that. It was um, PR and marketing, oh, and wow. she was um, an associate publisher of a magazine. Okay. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So she fit into the family. Yeah. I have to know great. what the songs were. What was the, what was the opening salvo? What's what was the opening song? salvo? Yeah. I can't sing right now because of no, the I didn't, fact that I wasn't going to ask allergies. you to sing. But what was uh, the song? New York State of Mind is usually my opener. Uh, Jack and Diane. Uh, Free Fallen by Tom Petty. Okay. And what did she sing? Landslide. By Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. And she just... And you were a goner. That was it. I was a goner the second I laid eyes on her. I really was. I got to tell you, Franklin, this is not the interview I expected today. I don't know what I expected, but uh, you're a very deep dude. I'm really... Uh, this was Thank a great you. hour. I really enjoyed it. Good. I really enjoyed, enjoyed it. Yeah. Great. Thanks for being so open. Absolutely. And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Franklin Becker, Andrea Strong, and Sean Feeney. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. We'd appreciate it if you supported us by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or simply rating and or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find the show. Thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we will see you back here soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.